Welcome to the Apex Vaulting Podcast. Uh, we got another great episode for you. I'm super pumped for this one. Um, but before I tell you who the guest is, I just want to go over a couple things. Um, make sure if you like the podcast, please subscribe to us. Leave a review. We would love that. That helps us out a lot. Also, if you could follow us on Instagram, we're the real Apex Vaulting. We post a lot of content on there, a lot of instructional stuff, funny stuff, everything. Um, we also are Apex Vaulting on Facebook, Snapchat, Twitter, and TikTok. Um, also you can subscribe to our YouTube channel. That's where we put all our tutorial stuff. Like that's really just instructional stuff. And of course, if you need help with anything, make sure to reach out uh, to us uh, via email. It's just apexvaulting at gmail.com. We love helping people out. One huge way that we can help you out again, I'm going to mention, um, with UCS, we're working together. If you buy five poles or more, those are called pole bundles and you could save hundreds of dollars. So make sure to reach out to me. I can hook you up, uh, with UCS and get you those five pull bundles or more. Um, and without further ado, I just want to give a great introduction for this guy. Um, we have Bubba Sparks on the podcast today. I'm super grateful. He is uh, such a well-known name in the pole vault community, especially in America, but internationally as well. If you're on Facebook at all and you pole vault, he's probably a friend requested you. You should accept if you haven't. Um, but Bubba has a wealth of knowledge and experience. He's been pole vaulting for so long. Um, so uh, without further ado, um, here's the podcast. Enjoy, guys. All right, uh, Bubba, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, this is so awesome. Uh like I said before we started recording, um, give a little bit of background. Uh, I, I, if someone doesn't know you, which is crazy, but like, let them know about your experience of the pole vault. How, how, how long have you been involved in this sport? Um, you know, and, and why are you still going with pole vault? Like, how, how, what kept you going? Well, I first appreciate you having me, man. I've always respected you. I think you do a lot of great things. I like the way you deliver your message and content, so I really enjoy talking to you. Um, Thank you. For me, this is this will be my 55th year to pole vault. Um, I saw it on TV when I was 12 years old. I uh, saw Bob Seger at the Sunkissed Invitational. Okay. I saw it from a couple of angles. I thought that was the coolest thing I'd ever seen in the world. So right. I went outside and started grabbing sticks and things like that. Pretty quickly, I broke through the little sticks. And then uh, <laughs> they're, they're building houses around us. So uh, they had all these carpet rolls on bamboo poles. And so when they okay. run the carpet out, um, when they run the carpet out, they would uh, give us the pole, and then they would give us the, the scraps of the padding for that, right. uh, the carpet. So we put that down, and we would jump and, uh, and jump and jump and jump. Then my first formal time to pull ball was in seventh grade. Uh, and when I got there, um, I mean, we didn't know it at the time, of course, but there was a guy there named uh, Buddy. And uh, mm -hmm. Buddy was the athlete. He was the stud. And it turned out that it was Buddy Swayze, Patrick Swayze, people, the movie star. Wow. So he, was wow. On a, he was on a steel pole. We were on a steel pole. You know, he was stronger than we were and stuff. Mm -hmm. and I think he went on to jump 14. But, you know, we became friends and kept in touch with each other. But it just kind of kept me going. And then as I moved along through high school, uh, Dave Roberts was a really good high school golfer at Conroe High School. So I would see him at our track meets and uh, you know, it's kind of weird how pole vault is when the really good guys are jumping. Everybody's already gone home. So I'd hang out there with me and my brother and my mother, and we'd mm. watch Dave jump. And I think he jumped 15 or 15.5, and then he went to Rice University. So okay. Rice University had the 1964 Olympic champion Fred Hansen, who was also my dentist. Okay. So 
Fred was coaching Dave. And uh, so we went out every time, pretty much every time Dave jumped, we went out and we practiced before him. And while he's warming up, he kind of talked to us and coach us. Mm-hmm. And then when we're finished. We stay and catch steps and catch pulls and all that stuff. Yeah, so yeah. I kind of got to start off at a high level. But, you know, since then it kind of evolved. I jumped 18-1 in 1978. Wow. It's kind of interesting. We had three separate all-comer meets uh, on, on three consecutive weekends. On the first one, I jumped 18 feet even or 549, and I was on a, a 15-205, gripping mm-hmm. 14-9. Uh, the next week I moved to a 16 wow. foot pole. I was gripping 15 four and I jumped 18 by 50, 18 feet, one half inch. Wow. The next week I went to, uh, uh, move my grip up and moved again. I went to a 15 eight grip and I made okay. 18 one. So over three weeks, my grip went up 10 inches, but my vault improved one inches, one inch. <laughs> yeah. which, so, which, which is it, funny. We, we've, I, I mean, I, we've talked about it, but I feel like I've talked about it with a lot of people. I'm sure you have too. You, I feel like you have to always be looking at the grip and what's happening to your PR and push off. Like it should be going, right. it should at least be matching. <laughs> Yeah, well, it should. So, I mean, I'm looking at, you know, 14 nines. That means a 14-foot grip in the boxes. Right. Uh, nine inches deep is 14-foot net grip, and the bar is mm-hmm. at 18 feet. It's a four-foot push-off. Yeah, so yeah. So, I'm thinking, wow, I can move my grip up to 15-4 this week. I'm going to jump 18-6. Well, right. You know, it did it didn't work that way, but Bruce right. Caldwell at the time, you know, who had, who started Essex and, and he was the national sales manager for Scott Bowl, the blue banana Scott Bowls. And mm-hmm. so I met Bruce in 1975 after our national meet. And, uh, he had this little computer model thing and his computer model said that based on my skill and grip and everything else I used that my PR was 18.2. Uh, mm. So that summer after I jumped 18.1, I just decided, you know, this 78, they're talking there may not be an Olympics in 1980. Right. And I just decided I, just decided I wasn't going to continue to starve. I was going to get out mm. in the real world. So I retired then, you know, formally from that. But I kept jumping and, uh, you know, kept jumping just for fun, you know, lower poles and stuff. But mm. anyway, so I jumped 18.1 there. And then I went on and uh, the, the way it works for master's falters, I'm sure everybody's figured figured it out by now. But if you want to place the vault, you have to volunteer at the school you want to vault at. So, <laughs> right. it, kind of, it kind of came became a good thing. I was I mean, to give you some examples. Mm-hmm. I was at UC Irvine for 14 years. I was at Dana Hills High School in Southern California for six years. Mm-hmm. Um, I was at the Woodlands High School for nine years before I went back down to California. And then I came back. I've been back at the Woodlands High School in Houston uh, for the last two years. So it's, it's been a great relationship. You know, I watch these kids grow up. You know, I get to go to their weddings, uh, see when yeah. they have kids, when they have grandkids. So that's kind of the well, advantage of being yeah, around. Well, yeah. And so but before before we continue and, and before we get too deep into pole vault, I, I think that's the, the beauty of coaching is um, I was having a conversation with a former vaulter of mine who – doesn't vault now, but he was coaching for a long time. He's in the military now. He has two, two children. And, um, you know, we were talking about this idea of like, you know, it's not your turn anymore. And I yeah, think when right. you're coaching, it's not, it's not about you anymore. It's, it's about the athletes. You're trying to help yeah. them figure out this thing called life. Right. Pole vault just happens to be the activity that we share and we learn from, but it's like we want to help those those athletes grow and develop, not just as vaulters, but as as people, you know. And and that that's where it becomes beautiful, like you said, like going to their weddings, you know, seeing them, uh, you know, when they have their first child and stuff like that. It's just beautiful moments, you know. 
It, it really is. And it's just, and you, you know how it is. I mean, it's the, you know, the, the persistence, the patience, mm-hmm. the, you know, the intellectual. I think pole vaulting is like one of the, the biggest intellectual and physical challenges because even though you have a pole, the pole is only as good as the energy you put into it. Right. You know, it's, yeah. it's, so you're, it's an intellectual uh, math problem and head, head problem. You know, how do you solve this and how do you stay at the edge of your ability? Um, like my orthopedic surgeon said to me, which of course at 66, I see very often. <laughs> right. He said, uh, he said, you know, any elite athlete is walking on a balanced beam. If right. you fall off one side, you're not training hard enough. If you fall off the other side, you're hurt. And he said, you know, the problem with you fossils, you know, you older guys is that, uh, you know, the, the beam becomes more narrow as you age and the climb back up is longer. Right, right. And, 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 and I, I love that you brought up this topic. And I mean, I, there, there's a big topic that we want to cover uh, at some point. But I, first of all, I feel like we could probably do 10 podcast episodes, Bubba. Uh, there's so many things we could talk about. But yeah, I mean, that, that, that's the thing with training, right? I, I think at, at any level, but yes, as you age, you have to be even more careful, you know? Yeah. And it's like, yeah, you don't want to train too hard because you don't want to get hurt. But you've got to train enough that you're not losing speed and ability, you know, because like right. you said, the pole is not magic. You know, I, right. I even, I find, I find it funny and I'm sure with the amount of years that you have in the sport and the amount of pole brands that you've seen and different pole systems and whatever, it's like people all of a sudden want to believe like, oh man, if I just switch poles, I'm, I'm going to jump a lot higher. It's like, well, maybe, but maybe not. Like, are you better? You know what I mean? You have to make yourself better, you know? Right. And that's always, and that's always the balance. And the reality is any of us could adjust to anything. I mean, no matter mm-hmm. what the pole is, any of us right. can adjust our rocks to maximize it. Right. So, right. You know, that piece is okay. But you know, you're right. I've, uh, Bruce Caldwell made my pole since 1975. Mm-hmm. With that said, uh, you know, when he sold, uh, or sold out his, uh, side of ethics, mm-hmm. uh, I switched back over to Pacer Carbons. I used to, used to use Pacer Carbons a lot. I had a lot of kids at UC Irvine in my mm-hmm. elites. When I was at UC Irvine, uh, we had a ton of elites. We had Dean Starkey, Simon Raquel, Pat yeah. Manson's been out there, uh, um, Scott Huffman. We've had a bunch of guys come out and just hang out I, there. I, John for, and for people that don't know those names, I mean, those are all guys that are that are like – if not 19 plus, they're right near 19. I mean, that's, that's yeah, quite, that's, that's, guys. yeah, that's quite a squad, you know? Yeah. And so we'd have a little Saturday meet. We have all those guys out there. Right. And, uh, you know, Anthony Kearney's come down and jump with us a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's just, it's, it, was, it was a fun time. And, you know, my business is healthcare. I, the one time, mm-hmm. I think at that time I owned like six physical therapy facilities in South, South okay. Orange County, California. So, and I had a house that had a pool house out behind the pool. Mm-hmm. And so the guys would just come stay there. Literally, I think, uh, Simon Arkell stayed with me for three months before the 92 Olympics. Yeah. He'd come to, he come to town and his housing fell out mm-hmm. and he couldn't, didn't have time to go back to Australia and it was, you know, winter there. Yeah. And so we just offered for him to stay and he and Adam Steinhardt stayed at our house. And, and then we, it's just, and then when Mount Saxon town, you know, everybody comes and they stay at our house. They jump at Long Beach one week, Cal Poly Pomona the day, the weekend of Mount Sac and then do the Mount Sac. So they all come open door policy at our house for vultures. Alan Launder used to bring over like 10, 10 kids at a time that were wow. Australian juniors stay yeah, for like, yeah. you know, three weeks. Right. Wow. That's, that's awesome. I, you know, I, I feel like that, that is so great, uh, you know, that you've done that and that there are people in the public community that do things like that, you know, and help each other out. I, th- I think it's, it's huge. Um, well, I mean, there's not, it's not like there's, look, there's a, a lot of joy in it. 
Mm-hmm. There's a lot of stress in on trying to figure out how to make a living, especially in the American system. Yeah. And, you know, there's, there's been a lot of pole vaulters that have gone on to be really successful in business and, and, uh, other areas of life just mm. because they use the same tools it took them, you know, the persistence, yeah. the patience, the hard work, the accountable to yourself thing. So, I mean, I, I'm just a guy that likes to, I see people that were in my position, like my mom used to say, to me when I was growing up, she said, when you grow up and you decide you want to help pole vaulting, your number one rule is you don't ever charge a penny. She said, there's too many coaches who make a living on there that you'd be taking money from. And mm-hmm. she also said, there's too many out there that, um, you know, turn, turn their head and let you go vault when you weren't supposed to be out, left weight rooms open for you. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, in honor of them, you need to give back and, and um, under no circumstances take money unless you're going to give the money to the school or wherever you are. So yeah. that's kind of always been my attitude. Wow, that, 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 that's really, you know, amazing, Bubba. I, I, I think that, that's, I don't know. It's, it's an awesome mindset. And I feel like, you know, it, it's kind of going back to what I, I said kind of earlier, that thing, like, it's not your turn anymore, right. you know? Right. And I think, you know, for me, obviously, it's different. You know, I run a club. It's my business. This is my livelihood. Right. But even, exactly. even the yeah. mindset that I have always is like, I'm trying to, to, bring happiness, joy, and do as much as I can for the people that I'm, I'm lucky sure. enough to work with, um, right. that they have a great experience with pole vault. You know, like even my mindset That's was always right. like, you know, when I, when I jumped in high school, for those that don't know, I, I think I've mentioned it on the podcast, but it's like, I only jumped 10, six in high school. We had four, uh-huh. we had four poles at my high school. They were all right. 14, one fifties. One of them right. was UCS though. So that was the special one. You know, only good uh-huh. kids got to use that. And we didn't have instruction, you know? And so when I started coaching, I started with my own money, just buying poles, buying poles. And I started coaching myself. That's how I ended up jumping 14, which for me, it was a big deal. You know, I, I was pumped about doing that, but it's like, I always wanted to give my athletes as much as I could so they could have more opportunity than I, I had, you know? And I feel like that's, that's the idea that you have to have as a coach, regardless if you're doing it for your living or you are volunteering, you know, you have, you have to be trying to do this for others. Cause like you said, there's so many people along your path of life that helped you out. Now it's your turn to give back, you know? Yeah. There's a cool, there's a cool segue in that to Facebook and, um, Mm -hmm. I've, I wrote this. As a matter of fact, I think they you say some kind of statement or so. Mm. My statement on Facebook was that, um, and it's just twofold. It's more for what I say, which is that you know it's such a fun thing, and especially like in your club, club environment, it's such a fun thing to watch kids develop, you mm-hmm. know, and see their sense of accomplishment, see their joy when they've hard work has paid off, you know, and the family and the parents and everybody. It just it just raises you know all boats. By the right. same token, I I always say that. If we spend, if on Facebook, you know, you can literally watch hundreds of kids go through that process. Right. Follow. I yeah. remember following, I remember following a girl who went from, uh, just being like a 10, 6, 11 foot jumper and, uh, and becoming, you know, a silver medalist in the Olympics. Rusty yeah. Sheely, a friend of mine, uh, got me following Sandy Morris. When yeah. She was 11 foot Walter. Yeah. So, I mean, that's been fun. But then there was a, uh, there was a girl in Germany who, uh, it was like an eleven foot vaulter, I think, or eleven six, and mm-hmm. she went on to win the world world youth championships. You know, beating the Parnoffs and beating Angelica. Bitsen. Yeah, yeah. And so it's just it's fun to watch that. But the other side of that story is that that I say all the time, and one of the things I say at Reno is that how can we expect? Because we grew up, and I know that you do the same thing. Mm-hmm. We grew up intrigued and in, in watching the uh, uh, the 
the elite vaulters. And we, mm. we grew up, we knew the history of the sport. We had Dick right. Gansler's book, had these lists. Um, and, you know, one of my better friends right now is Steve Smith, who I used to just idolize as like one of the greatest yeah. vaulters. You know, now we're friends. And so that's just how the community is. But what I say to the kids is that, or I say to each other, you know, the adults, how are we supposed to expect the kids to uh, embrace our history if we don't care about them? Because yeah, they are the next generation. They are the right. generation. They are the right. history. So if you want kids to respect our sport, our event, our history, then we have to show interest in them as well. Yeah, so that's kind of my premise. I think we all win that way. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. I, I look. I, I feel like we can go off on a tangent and and take this sure. somewhere else. But let, let let's start the topic that that Warren to to talk about. You you made a post just yesterday on Facebook about run-throughs and psychology. Um, Why did you make that post? And we can kind of go deeper into it. But what 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 compelled you to write that post? Because I think at every at any coach, any athlete has probably at some point encountered that struggle with run-throughs. And you know, you talk a little bit about psychology in your post. So go ahead. Why did you make that post, Bubba? Uh, probably one of the top sports therapists in the world. There's a guy named Robert Andrews, and he lives in Houston, you know, where I live. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was Simone Biles. Uh, he is Simone Biles, sports therapist, Laurie Hernandez, the other gymnast. Mm-hmm. Um, many, many, many elite professional athletes, many who won't list their name. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he, he works with these people to help them get better focus, get their head about them. He, he suggested this in a post because he keeps saying pole vaulters, and every time he sees pole vaulters, it's always about uh, run-throughs, fear of a longer run, fear of a bigger pole. Mm-hmm. And so really what he wanted to do was he wanted to get some input from other coaches about how they looked at this, how they dealt with it. So it would give him a day. And also he's a okay. big mobile guy himself. Okay. He, wanted to, he wanted to get some practical ideas from other coaches about how they dealt with some of these things. Uh, it's kind of a record for him to draw on. When he's talking athletes, like I've sent him an athlete that's a, you know, one of my athletes who's real good and she has run, she had run through problems, but I told him I don't think it's mental. I think it's perception. And so, mm. you know, like we talked about yesterday, she had a way she was running uh-huh. and she came out of a skip, which we have then abbreviated to be very short, but she still was like back on her heels for two steps. And then she's leaning forward two steps. Well, if you're short running, that means you're at the box and you're just now right. down the vertical. You're, you're not leaning forward. So yeah. her run throughs were more perception, you know, than mental. And I told him that in advance, but she has other things too, like, you know, some little OCD things like I used to have. And I told mm. him this too. I said, I had a run through issue in high school. I also had had to have everything perfect. Like if she feels the pole move in her hands, it was distracting to her. Or she right. feels, and so it's just kind of those kind of things. And then, just to just to explain a couple things. So one, like you said, I think the skip into it. You know, a lot of times, right. like like you said, that's very common. Athletes who skip into it, if it ruins their posture, you know, they're right. not in position. Now they have to try to stand back up and be tall for takeoff. And right. even it might mess up their pole carry. Their tips too high, yeah. and now yeah. the they're actually correct. You can't take off like that. And so then you'll run through. So I think there's a lot of times like some posture issues, some pole carry issues. And, and then even, you know, like you brought up being like uh, obsessive compulsive. I think right. a lot of times what happens is we allow vaulters to go through a ru- routine that's yep. kind of like a baseball player going up to bat. Yep. Like, you know, all those batters that like literally if the pitcher takes too much time, they ask for right. time. They step out right. of the box 
unstrap and restrap their wristbands and gloves, do like 10 kicks or whatever of the bat and then step back in. And what I always tell people is, you know, at practice, you want to introduce as much variability as possible so that kids don't get stuck in routines. Like I'll do anything from a, a, a one left overhead carry two or three left overhead carry, low carry, regular carry, you know, just take off, just take off swing or the full jump. And so it's like by introducing all these different variables, I I, I feel like what you do is you kind of break that obsessive compulsive behavior. And then also you, you build a more robust, tough athlete that can handle variability. You know, I mean, what are your thoughts on that? I think what you're saying is right. One thing is, well, first of all, let me finish on the OCD part. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I told, you know, Katie, my girl, I told her, I said, look, when I was a junior in high school, which she is, mm. uh, she jumped 12 eight as a freshman. She's wow. a junior now. Wow. So we've had to take her from being pole rider to pole vaulter. She went right. really high and she jumped. Well, now she can jump over hand grip and we're just moving the grip back up and moving up poles. Okay. So it's an issue. But I said, look, when I was at the end of runway my junior in high school, if I turned le- if I turned my body clockwise twice, I had to turn back the other way twice. I mean, I was that wow. bad. Yeah. Uh, but what, what really kind of changed it for me is I had a guy, Joe Zerb, me vault from the Philippines, mm-hmm. and he'd be at practice, <laughs> and he would literally move his step like one to two inches and I would watch him walk up to his mark or something. I'm like, Joe, you step six inches in front of your mark, you know, no, or that time you're back three inches behind your mark. Yeah. So you're moving at one inch. So I came up with this weird idea that was fun. You know, like you and I were talking about yesterday, it, the, the pole vault in these issues we're discussing mm-hmm. very little of it psychologically, uh, psychologically. Yeah. it becomes like the, the trends are, are, you know, three, three uh, letters in the word routine are rut. So yeah. some of the ruts that they get in have to do more with the, like you said, the way they set themselves up, right. but the variability. So what I do at the end of practice for somebody who just can't get it is that, you know, the term that we use and you and I discussed it yesterday is that when you're coming toward the box, you have a sensation that you're going to be on with your step. We call that when the box calls. In other words, the box yeah. sends you a message you're going to be yeah. on. Right. And when that comes on, if you can't visibly accelerate and jump up, you're too fast, too early. So mm. the way we did that was was really kind of humorous. Mm. We would uh, I would I would set up an obstacle course. They'd sit on the pit beside me. Mm. I'd put a cone on the left side, maybe at thirty feet. I'd have a, a like a, a timer stand on the right side, another twenty feet. Mm. I'd have them sit up, go run around with the pole, go run around the cone. Uh, mm. On the left, come back across the runway, go around the right thing, come down the hurdle, come down the runway, run over two hurdles, uh, put their pole down, do two counterclockwise turns, three clockwise turns, two bar- forward rolls, two backward rolls. Now go plant, and every one of them can do it every jump. Yeah, because yeah. they wait for the box to call. They're not looking for a step. Right. So what I would say to him is that you're all worried about, he says, you don't have a step, you don't have anything, you take off every time. So how important really is your step? It's more important that when the box yeah. calls, you can run and right. you can jump. And so well, it kind of became a fun thing. And then we had some, I had a girl that they told me, you know, she can't take off past four. She just, after four, she just can't take off. Mm. So I just had her get a pole that was real comfortable, a pole she could use from three, pretty comfortable. Mm. And we just have her walk back 11 heel to toe steps to the next stride. Yeah. Don't run till the box calls. Same thing. We had her, we had that day, we had her run from 16 lifts. 
and she was able to take off with, with no right. mark, just 16 lefts. Right. So there's a lot of things that you can do that teaches them, like you just said earlier, about the posture you need to be in. Yeah. And it's all about being able to accelerate when you get the signal from the box. You well, have to be able to have another gear and jump up. Right. So I, I think for anybody listening, you know, especially when, when you're dealing with athletes with run-throughs, I think before we delve into psychology, it's like you got to check off a couple things. One, it's like, you know, are, are you catching a mid-mark? Because I think that's important. You know, that helps uh, stabilize the run. And as a coach, if you catch the mid-mark, your coaching eye gets better. You see the run better. You know, if you're just standing at takeoff, I mean, I I almost like I I feel bad when I see coaches that are literally like hovering on top of takeoff and staring at that takeoff mark. One, you're not seeing the run develop and you're not able to see the jump effectively. Right. So you got to catch a mid. Then it's like, are you teaching posture? Are you teaching pull carry? And are you teaching takeoff? Like you said, like, you know, uh, you called it like, you know, uh, the box is calling you, you know, takeoff is calling you. Right. It's like, do, are your kids just running and hoping that something happens at takeoff or are they, are they actually jumping up and, and creating a takeoff? Cause like you, like you said, I almost feel like to a certain extent, right? Within a, you know, a reason, if you move someone's step up a foot or back a foot, right? Like, let's say, like, wherever their mark is, is perfect. If you move up a foot or back a foot, they should still be able to take off. That shouldn't matter. I would even say, you know, if, if you're really, you know, good at takeoff, you could probably move it up two or three feet or move it back two or three feet and they'll make the adjustments and make it work as long as it's not maxed out grip, maxed out pull. But you know what I mean? And it's like, so they should still be able to take off because they can keep their posture and jump up and, and really hit that takeoff. So it's like, cause too often I watch certain vaulters and you can tell, you can see it in their eyes. They have yep. no concept for takeoff. They're just running and, and hoping. Yeah. Before they ever get to the mid, they've already either dialed in or they're not. They either have that right. or they don't. I kind of I try to sit between somewhere between the mid and the takeoff. The reason I do is because I, you know, I learned a long time ago when you used to look at video and mm-hmm. when you like go through a, a video of yourself mm-hmm. and you'd go through, you'd go through 16 frames mm-hmm. of ugly to capture that one frame that was good. So I'm kind of, <laughs> right. I'm admitting that for myself. So yeah. I'm, what I'm saying is that you can, whatever you're looking for, you can see. And so what I tend to do is I tend to sit there and I tend to watch around from the hips down and mm-hmm. I just pick things that are out of place. Right. And, you know, another way you can find things out of place really easy is to run video in reverse. So if you're watching video, running it back in reverse, you can really see energy loss really badly. Mm-hmm. But, you know, some of the big things that happen, as you were describing, is that, you know, firstly, they're too fast, too early. They just come out of yeah. the back. There's no tempo. Right. Uh, they go from a lift run to like a rotary type run, and they just can't jump up. The other is... Um, They'll, they'll run, I call it running past their plant. The last two or three steps, their right hand will come behind them. Right. Over to the side. And then another thing that, that I see pretty commonly, because that, you know, that's going to change your depth perception. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then also, you know, they're going to be a roundhouse plant now, which means the tip is over off the left side away from the box. Right. So they have to slow down. So all those things are what make them freak out because they can't make it over in time. Right. So I just think, you know, rhythm. Rhythmical type running, they, you know, I tell kids all the time, it's, I, I laugh because they all say no. I said, have you ever watched it's like a tennis match? And they all say no. Mm-hmm. But the ones that have, I said, you know, look, there's a person back there and they're just bouncing back and forth. And that's because somebody's about to hit a ball at them at 130 miles an hour and they don't know where it's going. Right. So by having that active movement, they can quickly move where. So I said, you need to run your run with a rhythmical type run because you can always add tempo to the rhythm. But, right. you know, it's like, you know, 
That's like power is total relaxed to total contracted in a short time period. Right. So if you're running down here half tight already, you're not covering as much ground. No, we yeah. You see her? I, I always – see her, but I did that. We told him to jog. He, mm-hmm. he was just – he couldn't get there. We told him to jog, and he was two feet under because <laughs> he's – you know, his – he can – you can cover more distance if you're relaxed. Right. No, 100%. Well, I, I, I always use a track example. I tell people – I'm like, how common if you watch 100 meters, right, and you're running – and you all of a sudden sense the, the lane next to you, the guy's catching you. You right. tense up and try to go faster, which actually right. shortens your stride. But now when yeah. you tense up your muscles, I, I think you lose like something like 20% of the power your muscles can, can create. And that's exactly when someone passes you by. Whether like you said, if the opposite, you stay relaxed and stay open, you'll keep your stride length. I mean people forget it's stride frequency times stride length. If you have just right. fast feet and they're choppy, you know, I, I think you said it yesterday. It was like, the, you know, you don't want to run like Fred Flintstone. That's not fast, right. <laughs> you know. Your hands are down. Your knees are in the way. Right. And, and again, like you, you were bringing up before, it's like, you know, teaching running mechanics is, is super important. I mean, I that was – it was funny. When I first started coaching vault, you know, and I, I – you know, like most people, it's like you set up the tripod. You just catch takeoff and on. But very quickly, I'm like, wait, you know what? Most of our product is coming from the runway. So I started like doing research on like Carl Lewis and Ben Johnson and their training and their running form. And I think Carl Lewis had beautiful running form, you know? So I was like, okay, we got to do some of this stuff. And that's the thing. If you have kids that are running backside, they're only engaging the hamstring. They're not even engaging the glute. They're not going to have big, powerful strides. And also when you run backside, it's very difficult to jump up. I mean, if you even look at... You know, it's funny, uh, you know, they just had all-star weekend for the NBA, but you watch that yeah. dunk contest. I mean, you can see those guys have nice posture, nice long short, and they're launching themselves, you know, and it's like, you, yeah. you have to have that. But if you're running backside, you're done. You, you can't do that. Well, and the, the thing is that, that it's funny because this kind of all comes back to the same point. Mm-hmm. These create mental issues, right? They're not <laughs> mental issues like like something's wrong. There are mental signals that they can't take off in that posture or that position. Right. And so like what I tell my kids is that, you know, I should see when you pick up the box because when the Mm -hmm. box calls, I said everything else is freeway on ramp. When the box calls, it's freeway. I mean, of course, I'm saying that's kids who don't drive yet, so they don't get that either. Yeah. (laughs) But But, but by the same token, I mean, if you can't visibly accelerate and jump up, you're too fast too early. Or you're right. Putting yourself out of your posture. No, 100%. And like, like you said, you could see it. When, when, when an athlete's coming down and they have a good perception for takeoff, you see them going after it, you know? Right. Whereas, like you said, you know, someone comes out too fast and, and you'll see it. They'll short stride it in the beginning, go all right. like, they'll, they'll be spinning, you know? And right. now yeah. they have to overstride to try to get to the box. Well, they know they're yeah. out of position. I feel like people yeah. forget too. Our brains are so amazing. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you might not be able to vocalize it. It might be subconscious, but your brain knows like something's wrong. Don't go. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. And a lot of that, you know, all, all the things we're talking about really are perception. So we, mm-hmm. we're really correcting perception problems. But, you know, Pat Manson, I mean, this is the advantage of, you know, having all those guys. And then, yeah, you know, I, I was uh, – me and Earl Bell were the two coaching technicians for the mm-hmm. 96 Olympics, which meant for five weeks I did nothing but hang out the pole vault pit with Olympic pole vaulters yeah. and their coaches. So it kind of makes you the hub of information. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're hearing all these things. But Pat Manson used to say he would stand by me and our kids, and he'd put his foot down, and his torso and his body's the same place. Then he just put his foot forward. And it's just like, so now I said, so 
you know, he said to me, he says, so am I under now or did I just put my foot in the wrong place? And so, right. you know, you know, my, so he what he said, his solution, because he had a tendency to do that, mm-hmm. he said his solution was to put his takeoff foot down as if he's putting it into a starting block, you know, at mm-hmm. that angle behind him. He says, of course, he wasn't going to hit that, but at least his foot came straight down. Right. And yeah. that's how he kind of overcame that. But I see kids, and, you know, their last three steps, their third step out, their chest is in front of their hips, in front of their knees, yeah. in front of their feet. And the last two steps, they displace so that they're actually leaning away with the full Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. In, what, in essence, in essence that's, they gave up a third of their swing with no pressure on the pole. Right. So they went from that position. Right. And I, I also tell people all the time, too, I think one of the things that happens is instead of actually planting the pole, they're actually leaning back to create the yeah. plant. And it's like, no, 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 like, what's better, extending your arms or leaning back? And kids are always right. like, yeah, I should extend my arms. I'm like, yes. You know, so it's, it's funny because, they, you know, there'll be like little things like that, that you have to really have an eye and watch for it and keep correcting that. I, I think another thing, too, um, that I'm really big on is like, you know, teaching kids, like you said, like the, the box is calling, you know, get ready for takeoff right. is teaching the philosophy, the movement of the vault. So that they can attack almost at any angle. You know what I mean? Like if they're a little out, it's okay. If they're a little tight, they'll figure it out. You know, and they can make adjustments. Because they have to really be able to feel this stuff. Like I totally agree with people. You know, it's like, okay, an athlete can only think about one thing. I agree. But I think any good vaulter, any good athlete can feel their whole event. And for us, pole vault, they can feel the whole vault sequentially. Like I, I know when I pick up a pole, it's like, okay, I, I, I can feel the poles in a good position. I start my run. Like you said, it's nice and rhythmic, nice, you know, building of the run. And then the tip starts to drop and you can't think in words as an athlete. That's too slow, but you have to feel these things and you have to feel the vault develop. If you don't, you're not controlling it. You can't control something that you don't feel. Well, you know, the, the thing about that is that, you know, I, when I first got serious, I'll tell you a funny little story. Yeah. I went out to an all-comers meet at Mount Sac, and there's this old guy that was the official old guy, I think, because, you know, now probably the age he was then, but his mm-hmm. name was Bob Baker, and he's just a really good guy. And he followed me out to my car, he officiated the pit, and I think I jumped 13, I was thinking maybe 35 at the time, mm-hmm. and uh, which is kind of funny, because I jumped 15-1 at 44. Wow. Yeah, but that's just, it's just wow. a matter of, you know, how, how you come back into the sport yeah, yeah. as far as being serious about it. But he said to me, he said, you look like you were a pretty good vaulter back in your day was your best fault. Mm. And I said, 18-1, he says, well, do me a favor. Don't ever coach our kids. What? <laughs> he says, somehow, you know, after 1968, when we had, we won every Olympics in 1968 and we haven't won one or even gotten a medal since then, because this is back in the nineties. Yeah, he yeah. says, he says, you need to study what the French do. You need to study what the Russians do. Become a student of the sport and then come help. But don't teach them how you learn because that doesn't, you know, that, that's why we're stuck behind and not catching anybody anymore. And wow. so that's kind of what I did. I took that as a challenge. So I called this friend of mine in San Diego, Billy Howerson. And mm-hmm. uh, I knew he'd had a whole bunch of papers that he had. He's reading a book. So he made copies of them. I went down to San Diego and saw him and picked them up. And I just started studying them. And I did tons of, I mean, I did a thousand walkings, jogging, striding plants mm. in my backyard to learn the drop. Right. So what I started doing with kids was I would have kids just run and I'd just have them put the pole in their hand on the palm of their hand and balance it yeah. and let, let it kind of go forward and let them see how as the pole fell, they naturally accelerated. The pole naturally fell over and their hand right. came up to plant the pole and they never vaulted before. Right. And so I kind of took it from there. So, that, But the reason I bring that up is because 
the, the studies that I read on that, Buka used a 40-pound pole on all his drills. Mm-hmm. And the reason he did that was because he, he, he was strong enough. He could put it any place he wanted to. But what he wanted to do is he wanted the pole to fall where physics wanted, and he wanted himself to adapt to where that was going. Right. He, he wanted so, to make it effortless, you know. Yeah. So we used a 17-foot, 215-pound Nordic that we just held on the end of it. We taped some little weights on the end of it so it would be heavy. But And that's how we learned. I mean, uh, also, I, one of the studies that Billy had was about the Russians, and they had this, uh, they had this pressurized floor. Uh, mm-hmm. where it would tell how long you're in the air to where you hit. Right. There are like eight vaulters that were able to run and just jump into the air for hang time and see how long they can hang. Yeah. And then they had another group that took big poles and did that. And the, uh, the guys that actually jumped with the poles were in the air almost a little over 10% longer than the mm-hmm. guys who just ran a jump. Right. They allowed the pole to pull them in the air as they had worked. The yeah, 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 yeah. Mm-hmm. So those things were fascinating to me at that, at that time. But it's just, you know, it's, uh, it's like I say, it's just one, one big intellectual challenge that challenges from jump to jump. You know, but to your point with regard to the vault being different, Doug Fraley said one time, which I thought was just incredibly accurate. Mm-hmm. He said only about 30% of the jumps that you take are actually going to turn out the way you think they are. Everything else mm-hmm. is going to be a safe. So you better, you better fill that database with jumps so that your body automatically intuitively can make a save. Right. Right. Yeah. 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 That, that, that makes a lot of sense, you know. Uh, and then I had a one, one other, just one other thing yeah, else, yeah. kind of topical. But uh, I had a kid, Boris Santano. He jumped up, and he jumped sixty-five, so eighteen six and a half, and then made eighteen ten and a half, and a jump off at Mount Sac to uh, with he and Nick Hyson were tied. And they did a jump off, but he was about five eight, uh, one sixty-five, just perfect mm. technician. But uh, because he was so small, uh, we got a hold of through Simon Kell, We got a hold of Greg Duplantis. Okay. Yeah, you because know, you're in the same position. What do you recommend to my guy? Because I got him as a twelve. Uh, sorry, as a thirteen foot uh, sophomore in high school, and, he, mm-hmm. and six years later, he jumped the eighteen ten and a half. But um, Greg just said, yeah. tie, "Tie a sled on you, wear it to the shower, wear it to the cafeteria, wear it to class. <laughs> just don't ever take that sled off of you." Yeah. <laughs> so that that pretty much worked for him and for me, and we did a mm-hmm. lot of that. But it was the same thing. He could get these positions, but as short as he is. How's he going to overcome the feel of ripping, you know, almost 16 feet? Right. Without, you know, getting under and plowing the bottom, which, you know, he didn't. Right. So they're right, all right. just, they're all, but all these things, the reason I'm saying, the reason I'm bringing up the story this way is because all those things improve the perception of where you are. Right. Improve your ability to adjust to the, where you need to be so that your perception is accurate. Now, one year he, he was just practicing in the off season. He lifted with, he had a shoulder surgery. He lifted with the, uh, uh, the big weight lifters and he ran with the sprinters. His problem was he was trying to start from too far back. He's used to doing short run jumping. Like he could start at three lefts and make 16 feet from standing 35 wow. feet on yeah. one of my, like my 1480. Mm-hmm. And he'd work his way back. He'd do like three or four jumps from three, three or four from four, three or four from five, and he'd stay at six. And he could regularly jump 17 six, sometimes 18 feet on a 15 foot pole. Right. Practice. Then he'd go to meet for 15 nine. But he got away from that during this one semester, mm-hmm. and he got so fast, so much faster and so much stronger, he felt like he was two feet out, but when he took off, he was really two feet under. Right. So, so he, lost the, he lost the perception 
you know, the perception from Ness that he had when he was jumping three, four, five, and six, he lost that. Well, it, when he goes to nine, he really thinks he's, he really thinks I'm never going to be there. I'm two feet out, then he's two feet under. Right, and and you know, and I've had situations with athletes that you know when they're training, you know they 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 pick up a lot more speed. And the right. thing is, if you yeah. just try to go back, you're kind of out of sorts. It's almost like being a you know a hitter in baseball, and if you've been right. used to like 70, 80 mile per hour pitches, and now all of a sudden someone's throwing a hundred. You know, right. you you have to you have to learn that timing, you know, um, and the timing of the drop and where to drop it. Because think about that. If you got let, let's say normally you could get away with dropping the pole at like 30 feet out, you know, start that pole drop from 30 feet out. If you got significantly faster, you might have to drop the pole like, you know, 45 feet out for, from the right. box. And now that completely throw it off. You, you threw off your perception, like you were saying, and you're you're not going to feel like you're ready for takeoff, you know. Yeah, you know, on the elite level, you know, Ty Harvey jumped nineteen seven, mm-hmm. he's got a second world indoors. <clears throat> what he used to do is he used to drop a gym bag at sixty feet, and he just didn't mm-hmm. run until he hit the gym bag. Right. That and, and that's the way he was able to get such a control. Yeah. Such a controlled run and takeoff is it? He's just it's the same thing I said. You got to keep the horses in the barn, as they say in Texas. You <laughs> don't run to box calls. Right. Right. And yeah. Then, you know, it's, it's, when you know, I get athletes, and this is also why we jump in flats. For a mm-hmm. long time, we don't ever jump in spikes in practice because we want to learn to run with rhythm. It's hard to mm-hmm. run for speed and flat, so it teaches you to run with rhythm. Right. And then when they go to a meet, they put they get warmed up, they do the same thing, and then they'll get the spikes as they start getting further along the meet. You don't deal with the shin splints, but they have yeah. a rhythmical run rather than a rotary run. Right. No, I, I, I agree. I mean, I, I think spikes a lot of times, and especially depending on the spike you wear, I mean, some of those spikes almost put you up too much uh, on on the ball of your foot. You know what I mean? You can't really – it almost doesn't allow you to hit midfoot, you know? And whereas if you're running in flats, yeah, like you said, it's going to help with wear and tear of your body. You know, you're going to be able to focus more on technique because a lot of people, they put those spikes on, they just try to run fast, and it kind of screws things up. Um, it, it does a lot. Yeah. And, 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 and that's what I tell people. I said, look, if, you, if you're running like that, uh, I'm sorry for the interruption. No, I no, no, go ahead. Sharp, no, 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 go ahead. I forget it. <laughs> but it's, anyway, what I tell kids, I said, look, you got 50 fast steps in your pocket. Do you want to use it on three jumps or do you want to use it on 15 jumps? Just run the last three steps. Right. And then the next jump, you can run just the last four steps. Then the next jump, you can run just the last five steps. Right. And when they do that, then they really get dialed in and they can take off any time, yeah. any place, on any pool. Yeah. No, I look, that's why it's like, you, you know, again, for those people who are like maybe listening to this and going, well, okay, wait, what what are the solutions to run throughs? One, there's not one magical answer. <laughs> you know, that's what people have to remember. But it's like you have to check off those boxes, you know, catch a mid, teach running form, teach a progressive pole drop, you know, make sure uh, athletes are getting ready for takeoff. You know, they, they hear the box calling, you know, it's like they, you have to get all these things in line. Once you get to that, if you still have someone running through, the the piece of advice that I'd always say is like, look, you have to then lower the resistance. People forget yeah. that your grip and your pull stiffness are just resistance. And listen, right. if you're – imagine this. Imagine your bench press PR is, I don't know, 250 pounds, right? Right. 
Right. Well, if you went into the gym every single day and tried to do 250, eventually you're going to fail because you can't yeah. max out every single day. And then right. what's going to happen is it's going to create a mental issue because now, you know, you might bench 200, you know, then do 225, then 235, and then all of a sudden, it's like, okay, you put 250 and you're literally scared to unrack it because right. it, it hurt exactly. your shoulder last time. You know what I mean? Right. And, and so the thing is, too, what I want to bring up is, also be careful with run-throughs. It's like, are you going to your long runs too often? People forget, you know, this is an athletic event. There is a physical component. This is not just magic tricks. You know, we're not doing, not doing card tricks. This, this is an athletic event. And if you max out on grip and pull from, let's say, you know, depending on the level of the person, a five, six, seven plus left, you can't come back to that for 72 hours. You, you need right. rest and recovery before you can max out again. And, and right. that's just a basic training principle. Like if you were going to do an all out sprint, you know, and PR in a sprint, you can't do that again for at least 72 hours. You could do a tempo run. You could do 70%. So it's like you could do some threes and do an easy grip and pull, but make sure you're not taxing the person's central nervous system too often. Yep. After that, you know, th- this is a trick that I did w- with uh, a couple people that started to have run through issues. And a lot of it, I feel like it goes back to what you were saying about your example with the one girl. Uh, they skipped into their run, which caused, caused problems. But I did something that I called like slow twos. What I did was like this one athlete, she could normally grip like 10, 9, 11 from two left. So right. instead I said, okay, you can only grip 9, 9. Okay. She would normally run from 25, 26 feet. I said, you have to run from 23. I'm like, this is super easy. You have to learn to control the gas pedal. Because I feel like some athletes too, they're like that. They're either completely off the gas or pedal to the metal. And so it's like, you have to be able to throttle your speed, you know? And I, and I got it. And I said, and this is the caveat too, Bubba. I put up a bungee at 11. I go, you still got to wrap 11 though. Right. So you got to be able to go down there, take off and still give me a nice full jump. And yep. once she could do that, then we would start gripping up and then grip back down and then grip up and grip back down and yep. play that game. And so once she got control of that kind of throttle, you know, she can control her speed and intensity level. Then we started going back. That helped a lot too. Yeah. Well, there's nothing more. To, I mean, the reason we don't have anybody jump from long run in practice just at mm-hmm. all, because I mean, the, the whole principle is to learn to run with rhythm and get as many jumps in as possible so we can speed up the learning curve. Right. So like, you know, Katie will start at three, but she'll put a bar up at four and then she'll jump from five. She'll jump from mm-hmm. six. She hasn't jumped from seven yet, but and, and she's in flats. So right. what happens, you know, you, you get to a meet, every grip feels low. Every pole looks little. You clear every bar by a mile. Like when Borio was doing that, he was, mm-hmm. he was jumping from six every week. He, he could start at three, you know, four jumps from three, four from five, four, then he just jumped however long he could jump from six. Yeah. He, he'd go to, and that's on a 15 foot pole, he jumped 17, six or occasionally okay. 18. And, but the thing is, he'd get to a meet and he'd start at nine. Right. After his little warm up. He'd start at nine. He's gripping 15, nine, and 18 feet looks like a joke. Because right. What, the reason the reason we do that, besides the obvious, you can get more jumps in, you can learn, or you can get a rhythm. Right. Is that I had a real hard time. Uh, and it really just demoralizes you to get to a practice and not, I mean, to a meet and feel worse than you did in practice. Yeah. So you're blowing through in practice now. You can't even get in on. So right. you, you look at your run, and your run suddenly in two feet from exactly what you said, extending the central nervous system with no rest. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So now you're on, now you're in a meet. It's a big day. You, you feel like crap. You yeah. can't get moving. And so I, I want the meat to feel special. Right. 
another thing I've learned over the years is that, and it kind of sounds weird, it's counterintuitive, but you know, rhythmical mid mid to upper mid level effort consistently raises your top end a lot. Like if I do yeah. like a ton of fifty meter sleds, I mm-hmm. just I mean for, for right. rhythm, not for speed. Yeah. When I get on the runway, I'm just flying. I was right. On bench, like when I came off of that, uh, you know, I. Uh, had a, a, a partial tendon tear above my right knee. Mm-hmm. When I got off of that and I started, the whole time I did that, I was doing like four sets of 10 and then I would come back around and do it four sets of 10 again on the four exercises. Mm-hmm. When I got into lifting again, I was so much stronger than I ever was before just because I got all those reps in at a lower level. Yeah. So if it works in sprinting, it works in lifting. It's got to work in vaulting. <laughs> right. And, and you bring up a, a good point. I, I don't care if it's in the weight room. I don't care if it's in sprinting. Volume is always good, but you have to control the intensity of the volume, right? Yes, like if, if my full approach is seven left and I try to get, you know, I don't know, 37 left jumps, even if I do it that day, you're going to pay for that later because like you said, you're going to go to the meet and you're going to feel fried. And I can't – like Bubba, it's so common. I've heard so many coaches go, I don't get it. Like so-and-so cleared a PR in practice and they look yeah. terrible at the meet. It's like, well, yeah, because you, you use that central nervous system at practice and they don't got it today. And like you said it too, you want, you want to almost restrict the kids a little bit in practice and like you said, the meat feels special. And then it's like, let, like you, you, you used the uh, horses as an analogy before. Now it's like letting the horses run. Like you opened up yep. the barn, you're like, go. And they, they want to go. They want to run. But it's like, well, if they're doing that at practice. Yeah. They got freshness to go, yeah. Yeah. Freshness to go with. Right. Yes. Right. So, I mean, to me, it's, you know, Bill Howerson also once told me one time, and, and I, I love this saying, he said, I'd rather be 70 to 80% healthy than 100% hurt. Yeah. You know, the best way, the best way I need to do it, and Adolph Burley calls it, stay within himself. And right. I do the same thing. I try to stay within seventy to eighty percent of what I think I could do this day. And then yeah. what happens is that builds up, builds up, builds up. And then when you go to a meet, suddenly the seventy to eighty percent you're giving is is kind of like the hundred percent would have been at practice. It right. feels like the same effort, but you're you're actually at a higher level, putting less effort. Yeah. Um, which is what you want. I mean, but the other thing too is and the reason we, another reason we do a lot of the short run, I mean, it's always progressions. The way we do a practice, just so you understand how it makes yeah. sense, there has to be, there has to be a consequence. Mm-hmm. So what we do is we'll start at three laps with a bar or during the season four and they'll start, we only use a crossbar. If they have three misses, they have to change the pole grip or the run or all the above mm-hmm. for the next three jumps. So there's right. a consequence. Uh, you know, you can't just take 20 jumps and make a bar. You've got to, you got three attempts. You got to change something. And right. So that's how they progressively move the run back. Well, I'm not going to make it on that pole. I'll make them take the three jumps anyway because yeah. the longer they extend it with that new angular momentum, the better right. it'll help them. So they'll take the three jumps even if they think the pole's too small. Now they're going to go back to stride, go to the next pole. Right. And surprisingly not, you know, they boom it. But right. the thing is that they work through that. And so now they got run PRs, pole PRs, uh, you know, yeah. I've never made that. I've never made that on that run from that grip. You know, they've got all these things that they're putting together and they have a chance to advance each day in it. But the reason we do that is because I saw too many kids running from long runs that about jump eight to ten, right when they're getting in that point where mm-hmm. they're going to start actually learning something, they don't have any, what I call facing your demons. Okay, here's yeah. what you do wrong. We got to right. fix it. Well, they don't have any jumps left. Right. They're so tired. Yeah. Them, so when you put them in this other position, they're fresh. And so they're facing their demons on like number three. 
So it, it was funny because just yesterday I, I was talking to a father and, um, you know, his daughter jumps at, at my club and, and, you know, she does okay, but she doesn't get to compete a lot. But we, we were talking and the dad was like, well, why doesn't she do more long run at practice? And I go, well, here's the thing. I go, it doesn't matter what length run she has. She still has the same takeoff issue. So right. until she she corrects this takeoff issue, I mean, heck, I could push her back to seven, eight left. She might not jump any higher, you know. Well, so it's like, and you, you're exactly right. And that's what that's what Boria used to say to me. He says people would come out watching practice sometimes because you know mm-hmm. it's a really good vaulter and yeah. he was technically very good. And matter of fact, in, in Reno one year, um, then with the year he started broken through, Earl Bell did a lecture about the best pole vaulter in the world. Of course, everybody's waiting for. You know, to be Buka, and he says, yeah. and it's Boria Solitano, he trains at UC Irvine with the Sparks. Well, mm-hmm. It's just because he had a gymnastics background, but he was perfect technically. Mm-hmm. And just for a guy that's 5'8 and 165, I mean, he could do it. But the point he used to say, because he's, he's also a smart guy, he's now a top gun uh, pilot, uh, a mm-hmm. top, top gun teacher. Yeah. Uh, but he got a, he got a master's in mechanical engineering, then he went on to, a, uh, to be a top gun pilot. Now he teaches. You know, flying jet. So he's a real highly intelligent guy. Yeah. His, his logic was real simple. If I'm not doing it right from here, what makes you think I'm going to do it right by going back further and adding these other variables? Well, yeah, I, I feel like people, so I, I feel there's a couple things, um, that come up in pole vault that create these situations. One, I think a lot of it has to do with confirmation bias. Right? right. So it's like, you know, the, the, the great example for confirmation bias is like, Oh my God, every time I'm running late, I hit the red light. It's like, no, yeah. you only remember the red lights. You don't remember all the times you got green and you made it on time, you know? That's a great point. Yeah. And I, and I think because a lot of people are like, well, when you move the run back, they're faster, they jump higher. Well, yeah, yeah, but you're remembering the one time that worked, not all the times that you developed run-through issues, all the times that the kids still had a messed up jump and didn't jump any higher. Because I see way too often, and I'm sure you see this, people will ask me for advice and it's like, you have an athlete that jumps the same bar from four, five, six, yep. and seven left. There yep. is an issue that you are not fixing, and you think adding a left is with more speed is going to fix it. It's not, you know. Just and, the problem. And and like the athlete that that you're speaking of, I don't want to mispronounce his name. Um, he's exactly right. It's like by going back a left, you're introducing more speed. You're making it more difficult, not easier because now you have to handle the speed. And if you don't have a smooth pole drop, if you don't have a good developing run, you, like you said, you're going to have to face those demons. And unfortunately you're facing those demons at a meet from a long run that you can't handle, you know? And, and so it's like, you have, you have to iron these things out from a shorter approach where it's more manageable. And like you said, Man, how many full approach jumps can you take? But how many can you take from a three? I mean, you can have a long jump session from a three, four, yeah. five left and really get some work done, you know? And the mistake people make there, and I've heard it from several people before that about it, is that, and that's why I progress all the way like four, five, six mm-hmm. they're going to run today. And they don't, they're not moving back up. They're moving back because they have three misses and they can no longer make it with that grip or that pole mm-hmm. or that, or they can't get on the next pole for that run. So they're progressing naturally through their poles and their grips and their right. runs, but they have three misses that trigger it. So they have chances that they, they have a third jump consequence many times a day. Right. Uh, many times when they're trying to get run 
run grip or run, I'm sorry, run or pull or grip PRs. There, right. It gives them a chance to do that. But the thing I see that, that, that bugs me the most is that, um, and I've heard this before, well, Steve Hooker, you know, well, I mean, let me remind you, Steve Hooker jumped 606. But right. he had a little run-through problem. He had a run-through problem because he limited his runs to four. He didn't go to five and six. To seven, mm-hmm. he ran from four. Well, he jumped eighteen. He jumped eighteen five from four. Right. Yeah. Oh my goodness. That that fo- that four left video that that he posted. I mean, that yeah. one looks so ridiculous because when he hits the cover, you're like, that's it. He's gonna like go like maybe sixteen, and then he just keeps going. It's wild. Right. I love that video. But go ahead. Well, that's but that's the point though is that you know you have to you know when I was in when I was in college, I remember my my junior year in college. I had, I had a, and I know it kind of sounds weird in perspective, but you know, like you said, you got to deal with the poles you have. Mm-hmm. I had a sixteen sixty that I could hold thirteen nine or so about because I wasn't yeah. on my gripper. Uh, I could hold thirteen nine on sixteen sixty, and I would when I would make when I had hip height twice on a bar, I moved it up six inches. And the reason being is because from the vaulter's perspective. Each new six inches requires a different type of angular momentum, which feels like a different ball. So the only way I figured you could learn to jump higher was to try higher bars. So I started off the fall semester jumping on that 1660 a million times uh, because the next pole was too big for that two foot run. So anyway, so I've I've got I've got pictures of me with my hips over 16.9. Right. The 13.9 grip. Yeah. It It started off with. I just need hip height if I can get hip height. So along that process, your left side of your shin starts hitting the bar. And, you know, we had those mm. metal bars. Yeah, so yeah, it yeah. starts getting cut up. It starts getting bleeding. So I learned at that point that, wow, if I took my left leg directly up the axis of the pole, I wouldn't flag out and I wouldn't hit my shin. I could at least get turned and be my hips over the bar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so that left leg up the pole thing is a one-jump fix for flagging out. But it, what I'm saying is that when it's not just the short run. It's not just the short grip. It's attempting heights that you can't make. Right. That's why, for instance, if I make if I make a height and the pole's too small, there's no way I'm going to make the next height. I take the three jumps anyway because right. I want to try to make that next height. And then guess what? After those three jumps – I've had that happen many times where on the next practice, I actually made it. And so right. you just, your, your body learns to jump at higher heights by taking jumps at higher heights. Well, I, I like the way you explained it uh, just a moment ago is that the higher the bar is, like, okay, and, and – you can imagine in a club setting where like, I mean, even last night we, we had over, we had over 35 kids at practice last yeah, night, yeah, you know? Right. So we use bungees, but like, right. you know, I always tell kids like my, my best from a three, I had 11, nine grip and I could wrap 16, you know? Right. And so exactly. the angle of your swing has to be so sharp. You know what I mean? Right. So it's very different. Whereas like, okay, let's say the average kid grips 11, nine and wraps uh, 12, six, 13. That, that angle of swing is almost like a drill swing. It's not, right. you know what I mean? A full jump. And so that's what you always have to explain to people. And, and going back to even Stephen Hooker, one thing that I wanted to mention was, you know, I feel like people fail to remember too. It's like, you know, he, he bombed out, you know, won the Olympics, jumped that 606 bar, attempted the world record. Then he wins the world championships on an injury. And right. here's the thing that I think people forget. 
I'm sure also to a certain extent dealing with the injury. I know he also, I think he got married that year. You know, he probably lost a little bit of runway speed and now all of a sudden can't handle the grips and poles that he feels he needs to be on to jump those Olympic heights. And I feel like that happens a lot to athletes too. It's like we like, and that I think the perspective you have being in the sport 55 years, you realize too, when it's like, okay, I I'm not strong enough or fast enough to be on this grip or pull, I can't just force it. Because that's right. where I feel like also people run into trouble. Well, but there's some people that are, I agree with you, there's some people that are masters. I, I told this Anthony Curran story. He used to come out and jump with us. Mm-hmm. And uh, so he came out and jumped with us this one uh, Saturday when we had uh, Dean Starkey and Samar Kill and uh, mm-hmm. some of the other Walters out there. Uh, he came out and and he took off and he was trying things like 18 2 or something and mm-hmm. he was his post competitive career but yeah, still yeah. jumping so he takes off and he hits the swing and right in the middle of the swing you hear him yell that's it and, you know <laughs> then he just booms over it yeah, yeah. the funny thing the funny thing that reminded him is every year he would jump at our uh, at our UC Irvine meet on Memorial weekend he mm-hmm. would he would he'd come bring kids he jump so he came over to me i think the bar was 35 like 17 six and a half he came over to me and he says, okay, I don't, you can't ever tell any of my kids this, my kids jumping, but he says, I need you to put the standards on 17. I said, inches? He says, no centimeters. And he says, <laughs> he says, I know, I, I know I can't get in on the, I know I can't get on the next pole and I know I can't make it on this pole if I don't move them in. Mm-hmm. So put them on 17 centimeters. Sure enough, comes out and bombs it. I mean, basically, yeah. not perfect. But, you know, 17 centimeters. But yeah. he was probably one of the best artists on the top of the pole. Yeah. He guiding himself. The female version of Isabel Yeah, yeah. It's just the good people that know it, know it. Right. Well, I, I mean, here's something important. Even you were mentioning earlier, uh, talking about your athletes at practice with four or five and six lefts. And, you know, you have training numbers and training data that helps you make decisions. Like Anthony knows, he's like, listen, like I know I'm going to land in the pit. That's not the issue. I just know I'm going to come down on the crossbar. Cause even Roman Bacharnikov would tell me stories that back in the day in Russia, there would be guys that they would land in the middle of the pit. It was a safe jump and they would jump 18, but they had to put the standards at zero. Yeah, it's right. just the way they were coming off the pole. Like that's that's just the way that the way it was, you know. And right. it, it, but but you know, again, going back to what you said about your athletes, you need to have data. You can't just jump. You know what I mean? Like I, I feel like sometimes, you know, I, I think Brad Walker had a, a, a little video clip uh, when he was still jumping where he said it the best. You know, pole vaulting is so fun. And, and I want people to have fun with it. But if you're really right. trying to jump high, like if your goal is like, I'm trying to PR, well, right. then you need data to back up what you're doing. You can't yeah. just jump and then hope things happen, you know? All right. I mean, at this, at this age of 66, and, you know, one thing I didn't get to is the master side. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've won three world championships and I've won uh, world championship medals on five mm-hmm. continents. And I, I write down every single takeoff that I have. If it's a two-step, mm-hmm. I put the grip and how it felt. In the pole, right. and everything. I, I, I mean, I don't care if it's my very first one. I'll say, okay, from two today, I gripped this. I was on this pole. Take off was at this. I mean, I, I still have that in a notebook to this yeah. day because you know, information's power. But, yeah. You know, another thing about talking about guitar and the rushes up. Dean Starkey had told me one of the th- his strategies. You know, he got third of the '97 World Champion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Then, that's one of my. Uh, that's one of my favorite videos. I, I, I yeah. watched that maybe a million times. <laughs> Go ahead. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, we were, we were good friends and he stayed at our house a lot during that time. We'd come to California. I mean, Southern California from Central. But, uh, I won, I got third in the world championships in South Africa a mm-hmm. month before him. So he took a picture in front of my house with both uh-huh. of the medals. Yeah. But he would tell me that he says, look, here's the deal. Katalin has to be on a certain pole to jump 80 or higher. I can jump it on any pole in my bag. I got, a, yeah. I got 11 poles I can jump 80 on. Yeah. I can jump from all these runs and all these conditions and all this. Yeah. I can jump 80 on any pole in my bag. He's got to be on that one. Yeah. So that's kind of the, that kind of sums it up the best as far yeah. as you know, how you can use your tools. And being, being able to adjust. Being able to adjust. I, I mean, I feel like sometimes too, it's like I'm very big with my athletes. Like we will make adjustments. We will make it, it whether you have to go from a five, six, seven left today, you got to be on this pole or that pole. I mean, people sometimes like uh, almost like make fun of me because I'll, I'll go to these meets. I'll have two bags packed with poles and they're like, Oh, did you bring enough today? It's like, I hope so. Like, I don't know what's going to happen today. You know, if I could, I would bring all 200 poles with me. Right. But, um, you know, it's like one of those things you have to be able to make adjustments. And I feel like far too often I I hear athletes or even coaches complain that, oh, they're not going to be able to PR today. It's too windy or it's too cold or it's too what it's like, wait a second. Everyone has to deal with these conditions today. And we also need to remember this is a sport we're competing you still have to get on the runway. Like, you know, like Dean knew that it's like, okay, this is powerful. I know Rodian Gatalin, he, he can only jump that 580 bar on that pole. I, I'm more versatile. No matter what happens today, I can get the job done. And that's, that's huge. It is. And, you know, that's a, to put it, I mean, when you bring up that subject that way, is that in 1976, I was at the meet that Earl Bell got the world record and mm-hmm. he jumped at Wichita. He jumped 18, seven and a half. Mm-hmm. I got my first 17 footer that day and qualified for the Olympic trials. Nice. Since pulled my hamstring at 17, seven. So Oof. I didn't get to go. But yeah. this, the point is, 1976, he gets the world record. He gets second at the uh, Olympic trials. Mm-hmm. And then he goes to meet and he gets 10th the Olympics. Yeah. And it was raining, swirly winds and all this. He was so disappointed by it. The story goes that he was so upset. He said, I learned a big lesson today. It doesn't matter what the condition, somebody still wins. They still give out the medals. Yeah. So the story goes that every time it rained or every time there's a headwind, even if it was in, unless, even if it wasn't a jump day, he would go vault in some way. Yeah. So we started doing that at UC Irvine. We get these things out there called Santa Ana winds where we have a 45 mile headwind. Right. And then we have like a pouring. So once a semester on the wind and once a semester on the rain, I would message or call my kids and say, okay, we're having a meet and it's practice day. We're having a meet, but this, this is, and I would say this is the day. Yeah. And what this is the day means is that you cannot pick up your pole. You cannot do a pole run. You can't do a pop up. You can't get on the runway until I call your name and you pick up and you pick your height and you jump. Yeah. And it's pouring rain. There's a giant headwind and I never had anybody know height. And right. I'll tell you what, they end up jumping within a foot to six inches of what they normally jump. Yeah. And guess, guess what? Whenever they go to a meet, they're just laughing at everybody else freaking out because we do. Right. And this, we, we always call it, this is the day. It's pouring rain. You can just, I mean, it's just the pits forming like a lake. Yeah. You're jumping yeah. in a meet. No warm up, no nothing. Pick your pole, pick your height. I don't care if it's six feet. Yeah. Pick your pole, pick your height. Let's go. And everybody just had a blast. I mean, they were so intimidated yeah. by it, but then they were so empowered by it. Right. The, but that's, that's just like you just said. Somebody still wins. They still give the medals. Yeah. Well, and, and, and it's funny, like, you know, whether it's raining or windy or whatever, I mean, obviously safety comes first, but it's like, 
these are all just going to take percentage points off of your PR. Like you said, it's like, you're not, if, if you're, you know, a 12, six high school female vaulter, you're not going to in the rain, all of a sudden jump six, six, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like right. you can manage it and get a grip and a pole that you feel comfortable on and probably still jump 11, maybe 11, six even, you know? And, and so, exactly what yeah, you exactly know, what and, and, and that's the thing. Like I, you know, that's why even th- this summer, I'm so excited to see the Olympics because because what a crazy storyline we have. I mean, Mondo just broke the world record twice, but then right. you have like the king of consistency. I mean, has anybody been more consistent for the time period the last few years that Sam Kendricks has? I mean, Absolutely so not. I so I'm like I'm very intrigued. Like, what is gonna happen? You know what I mean? And and listen, I think also people forget how close their their PRs are. You know, yeah, I, I know, yeah. I know Mondo they broke are. the world record, but it's, it's 20 feet, three and a quarter inches versus nineteen ten. Yeah, yeah exactly. it's, it's close. It's, well, you know, you know, the, here's the thing. I mean, I wasn't a grip. I wasn't a high grip guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I grip high. I, I learned how to grip high and still be effective, mm-hmm. but I was not a high grip guy. My first mm-hmm. 15 jump, my first 15 foot jump, I was gripping 11, two. Yeah. I'm sorry. I was gripping 13, two. Okay. And so, I mean, I was a big, I was just like Sam. I threw my head back and I jumped up and I swing before the pole hit the box. Yeah. And then I moved my grip to 14, three one day and I started making 16. Then yeah. I went to Texas relays and I saw Larry Jesse uh, jumping and he's a good friend of mine. And I mm-hmm. saw him, Dave Roberts, I think jumped 18 and Larry jumped 17, six, but Larry was just, I mean, he looked like he was walking down the runway. I mean, like one of my <laughs> friends said next to me, he says, he ain't running fast enough to scatter crap. <laughs> and, and so, and, so, but he just like reached out of socket. He just held that out of his shoulder. Yeah. He just reached so high. He just held that position and he just moved his hands forward as he swung. Mm-hmm. So I went out the next day and I tried to mimic what he did. I was like, see what he did. Let me see if I could feel what he did. And right. I moved my grip that day. And one day I moved that grip, my grip from 14.3 to 15.10 okay. on a 16.70. Yeah. And the pole was really mushy, but I just really kept reaching up, kept reaching yeah. up. And I started at 60 feet, then I went to 90 feet, then I went to my 120 feet. Mm. I didn't put on spikes till 90 feet. But mm. I was gripping 15.10, so I moved my grip down to 15.2 and started repping 17 feet. My PR at the time was 16.4. Wow. Yeah. So there was a way to make that happen, but you have to, you have to, you have to find consistency in a rhythm. And I just, I just look what he looked like and I went, I mean, I can run yeah. faster than that. Yeah. And, and, and so it just come, comes down to, you just, you just apply those rules to yourself and then find consistency. But like you said, the consistency in practice, the rule, as you know, is you know, practice like you compete, compete right. like you practice. So if I get to a meet and I see somebody in their long run spikes and they haven't done anything from three or four, I'm like, what are you doing? Yeah. Let's yeah. stick with what's familiar. Right. Well, and, and you're bringing up so, so many things that, well, just listening to your stories are making me think about so many different things. But I think one of the things that is super valuable in the pole vault, one, how thankful I am. Like, I, I always thought this, like I started coaching in 2004 and I'm like, thank God for all the people that came before me because oh, I learned from every story. I mean, uh, Bubba, I, I would go to uh, Kinko's, FedEx Kinko's, a copy place. I literally would print out everything I could find on the internet and make my own spiral wrap books. <laughs> and I would just read this stuff, you know, every chance I got. And, you know, you, you lived it though. You know, you've been through the generation and what I think is super valuable when I, I listen to you talk or read the things that you post on Facebook is that you've tried it all. Yep. You know what I mean? Like you, you, you yep. never got 
like religious about, oh, I'm only going to do this because you are like anything to jump higher, you know, anything well, to make it better. And so you were, you were willing to try different things. And that, that's how, I mean, listen, at this point at the club, like we have a certain way of doing things. I mean, we're always open to try to make things better and create a better process. Uh, but it's like, I've tried a lot of different things, you know, <laughs> That's key. I mean, look, it's uh, like my friend Bob Baker who told me don't coach any kids. He and I became really good friends, and mm-hmm. I really studied. I shared the stuff I studied. And I practiced mm-hmm. it. And then if a kid would come home and tell to the tracks and say, hey, let's talk to someone, they say this. I said, well, you know, heck, let's give it a try. If it works, well, I'll do it. But right. a couple of things we tried, a couple of things that we tried, three things we tried that failed. Okay. Uh, one was that we jumped, we jumped two months with only a bungee. And yeah. the, the takeaway was we didn't jump any higher and we completely lost our bar awareness. Mm. And we used to be able to wrap around bars and just, I mean, we could touch it in three or four places and yeah, still yeah. leave it up. We completely lost our bar awareness mm. and we didn't jump any higher. Yeah. So then, you know, and that kind of happened because I had a kid that wanted to get into uh, Sunkissed Invitational. It's a big indoor in LA. It doesn't exist anymore. But anyway, that's when we're boot good guys for six meters. And he said, can you get me in some meat? And I'm like, yeah, I can get you the meat, but I got to see you jump. And so he says, mm-hmm. well, I jump 16, 16, 6 every day. Well, he came out to jump with us and I asked him where he jumped and he told me and I know mm-hmm. that's an Oba Bungee only place and we yeah, just yeah. done our little bungee experiment that failed. Right. So I said, you need to, we're going to jump in a meet you see everybody this weekend. Come on out. And we came on out. He wanted to start at 15 feet and I was in, I watched this warm up. I knew it was a bungee because for us, a tight bungee means two feet less. So if you make a 16 yeah. foot bungee, you're a 14 foot balter. Mm-hmm. So he agreed to start at 13 six. He made 13 six on his last jump and did not make 14 feet. Wow. And, but he really believed he was a 16 foot balter. It demoralized him so horribly. Well, it completely destroyed his spirit because he really believed that he was a 16 well, foot balter. Well, y- you know what's funny too? And I, and I think, you know, again, you know, I, 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 told you we use bungees at the club but what i think is there's super a, there's, an effect, there's an effective there's an effective way to use them no no, no but what i was going to bring up is i think as a coach you know you have to be very honest with your athletes it's like if a kid wraps a bungee you can't you can't tell them that they cleared it like for me it's just two feet yeah I mean, it's really i just don't look you we're going to use a bungee today but subtract two feet that's what you could make with a bar yeah, and then that kind of that kind of puts them in some perspective, and they can right. get something done. The other failure we did was we moved the standards into sixty. We felt like maybe we're maybe we're instead of eighty. I mean, I was on the mm-hmm. field at the nineteen ninety six Olympics. Yeah, often on the field in the stands. I saw the closest standard setting I saw, and one guy was 70 or 28 inches. It was for Trendenkopf on one yeah. jump, and then he moved it back to 75. Everybody was at 75 or 80. Mm-hmm. I mean, even though the, the elite guys at the higher heights, they have the standards closer, yeah, we yeah. pretty much weld our standards at 80, so they have full speed, so they're safe. Right, and yeah, we, no. We, at practices, we, we, it's always it's yeah. always at 80, yeah. Yeah, we, we pulled the standards in for two months and only jumped out from 60 to see if we're going with the pole better. Mm-hmm. Well, the reality was we weren't, we, we quit getting the pole past vertical. And right. we got to a certain part, we couldn't even get the pole to vertical. Right. When we moved the standards back, we blow through it. Right. So we learned that lesson. And then the last lesson we learned was, uh, we, we did one whole off season of every jump you took with taps. And I mean, you were on giant poles and it started with your pop up. Yeah. I mean, yeah. You were on giant poles. So on Boria's 18th birthday, he jumps 18 feet uh, with a tap, gripping on the end of a 1680. Right. Well, then he gets to a meet. I mean, he gets to his first meet after that. He's on a, a 1670, 
Yeah. So it been 15-4 instead of 16 feet. Right. He did jump 17-4, but the, 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 again, you have the demoralized part. Now, we had it down to a science, and I still use a tap for, as a spot for somebody. Yeah. I don't use it consistently. But we use it just like on a bench press, like you mentioned earlier. Right. If somebody gives you a little lift on a bench press, yeah, I gave you about a half a pound or I gave you a pound. Yeah, yeah. That's how we do taps. We let the person actually leave the grounds. They have to take the impact themselves, mm-hmm. and then we hit them in such a way that it's only an impulse. In other words, the impulse could be duplicated on your own, you know, with adrenaline or if you're feeling right. that. But it was never a push. And we, we were so ridiculous about it that we would actually time frames of how long your hand was on their back, yeah. whether that was a good jump or not. So you couldn't push them. Right, so right, we, right. we did that. And so what we found was that it's the same thing. If you use smaller poles and completed the jumps on your own and use bigger poles and meets, you jumped higher a lot faster. Yeah. So now, those are just lessons we learned by, but like you said, by just trying things, make ourselves the lab rats. Right, right, and and you and you have to you have to be able to to try things and learn. And and look, even to this day, you know, I'm very open. I I I look at what other people are doing and will ask questions and you know and see how maybe it could fit for what we do. And and if I think something's going to help, we're going to do it. You know what I mean? Um, what I just find so often is like. People get so stuck in one way, you know what I mean? And like I think about that story of you watching Larry Jesse, you know, and you're like, well, God, man, this guy is not even running fast. How the heck is he jumping high? And you're like, well, I got to try that. You know what I mean? Whereas, you know, there's a lot of people that would have watched Larry jump and be like, screw that. You know, I'm going to do it my way. I'll teach him. You know, it's like, wait a second. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like you have to, you have to be more open-minded there. If you're seeing something that's not matching up, like – like even, you know, I, I love watching Sam's jump because it's like, it almost doesn't make sense. Like, how is that working? You know what I mean? Yeah, but right. you watch it and you try to say, okay, what, what can I take, take away from here? You know, what, what can I maybe add to, to my jump? You know, because I think that's, that's what helps move things forward. I think that mentality of no, you know what I mean? Well, you got to check. And like you said, you guys tried these three things. They didn't work. Now you don't use them, but it's like, right. you know, it's like you have to at least try and make sure, you yeah. know? Well, and this is kind of interesting Two two stories on that one. Dave Roberts, when he worked with uh, Fred Hansen, Fred Hansen, he had this thing called the eight factors of vault. He broke the vault into eight factors and each one of those had like four to six things that you had to do right to make that factor right. Beginning with the run mm-hmm. and take it all the way through the jump through the, you know, the plant, take off swing, swing through extension, you know, pull, turn, not turn, pull. But he had like, you know, four to six things on each one. And Dave had to spend a week on each one before he could progress to the next. Mm-hmm. And then once he did that, then he'd get to the next one, but he had to maintain what he did the first one. So I, I was brought up micromanaging the vault and every piece of it. So I was very into the technique. But what I found out that, you know, I think Anthony Kern is probably one of the best technicians ever. Mm-hmm. He and I, you know, he's at UCLA and he and I used to hang out and talk a lot. And, he would say, help me, he said, help me understand what you're doing about this, or what do you mean when you're saying this? And then he would do the same, and what we found out was that by actually walking through and, and just breaking it down into pieces and what we're doing, we were actually saying the same thing, we were just saying it different, it was like a matter of semantics. Right, right, right. And then, uh, Vince Beresford was coaching uh, uh, Mary Sauer and a couple of other vaulters uh, who mm-hmm. were good at the time. He was out of the Pacific, and he's a good friend of mine, too, and, and Anthony. So what we ended up doing as we got close to the Olympic trials in 2000 was uh, we would – when we were trying to get our – I had Lisa Kubishta and Boria, and they mm-hmm. had some vaulters. So 
Anthony say, hey, I'm doing a surf camp in Torrey Pines. Why don't I send Tracy down to Irvine and we'll meet there? Hey, I need her to do this, so you coach her and I'll coach Lisa. What are you trying to get her to do? And so mm-hmm. we would each coach each other, and then Vince Barrett would call and say, hey, I'm sending Mary and Mel Miller up to you. Um, mm-hmm. I need, I'm, I'm trying to get them to do this, but they're not getting it. You, you take them. So once a week we would do that. Right. Uh, we would send them to the other and rotate. We'd send them to the other coach and let them put, you know, we'd have the conversation before. She's just not getting this. But that all came from us having technical conversations, right. realizing that we were saying it different, but it was semantics. We were really saying the same thing, just differently. Right. And so then it became a trust. And so sometimes, you know, we'd be like at big meets and one of them couldn't be there. Then, then everybody felt comfortable being coached by either of the three. Right. You know, it's just one of the great things about, you know, being able to collaborate with other coaches. And that's the thing that athletes need to see in our, for our culture is that coaches are friends and there's, there's not a competition. The competition is against you and the bar. It's your own personal journey, Mm. but the coaches are friends. You're not an enemy because the person's on another team. Right. Walters help you serve that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny. I had a conversation with a, a high school athlete at a meet. And, um, you know, there's, like you said, look, there's sometimes animosity between clubs and stuff like that. And what I said to the athlete, cause he needed to borrow a pole, which I of course let him borrow. And I said, like, look, you're entitled to your opinion as am I, but we can both help each other out. You know what I mean? Like we could be friendly. Like if you uh, listen to anybody who ever needs a pole. They can always yeah. borrow polls from me. If anybody needs help coaching, I will coach them. Because here, here's something funny too that I feel like coaching out of me, look, that's not coaching practice. I don't need right. to try to change your technique. I'm right. coaching you out of me. If you need help, hey, like I'm just managing the variables. Like, you know, do you yeah. have the right grip? Do you have the right pull? Are you hitting a good mid? You know, like where should the standards be? Stuff like that. Uh, but, but yeah, like you said, I feel like people, you know, look, I love competition. Right. Like when I'm on the runway, I want to win, you know, and I want my athletes to win afterwards. Hey, let's break bread. Let's bullshit. Let's let's have a good time. Let's talk about it. You know what I mean? Um, But but yeah, that sometimes people look at it a certain way and it's like, wow, this is you know, this is a little bit toxic because it's like especially for, for my athletes, I want them to be good people. You, you know what I mean? Most people are never going to make money off a of pole vault. This is supposed to be something that's enjoyable, supposed to teach right. them life lessons and help them become as successful as some of the vaulters that you just described who went on to be, you know, top gun pilots and, and stuff like that. You know, it's like that's what we're trying to help people get to, you know. But so. here's, the, here's the other side of that, too, and I know you get it totally, but look, man, I, I love what you do, I, and mm-hmm. I, I've told you before, I'm a huge fan of yours, what you do, how you present it, the manner mm-hmm. you do, the material, the thought, I'm a huge fan of yours, but the Thank reason you. we really do it is that, you know, I've got a, a kid, I'll tell you t- to one one story, I had a kid at, at Data Hills, he was kind of a little chunky guy, you know, mm-hmm. short, he really wasn't fast or anything, yeah. but he just loved the event, and he yeah. became... He became the technician of the team. I mean, he was the best fault model of anybody I had. Yeah. He PR'd at the end of the senior year, eleven feet. Yeah, I mean, I will take that guy over over many other people many times. Hundred percent. One part, and then I had a kid at the Woodlands High School many years ago, and he's a good-looking kid, a blonde guy, senior year, just the nicest guy in the world. He wanted to vault, but he had flat feet. 
He just wasn't fast. He didn't have much athletic aptitude. Yeah. But uh, he was just a great kid to be around. So he says, I know I can't go to meets, but can I kind of like jump with you guys and maybe be team manager and help make sure everybody gets their polls and everything yeah, for the yeah. meets and stuff? I'm like, yeah. So we had a regional qualifiers meet. So people who qualified for regional meet came to our school for a meet. Yeah. So what I always did at UC Irvine and what I do with the Woodlands is we'll have a master's meter and all comers meet right before that meet so that we right. have officials for the meet. So we'll get an official mark, but then we'll be the officials for the meet. Right. So I got, I got the coaches. It was no argument. Coaches are fantastic there, but yeah. they, they gave him a uniform and mm. let him jump in that meet with us. Right. And his big deal was, and I, I'll say at the end, but his parents were there and they're going to see yeah. he's jumping at school uniform. He's jumping with us and he hit his lifelong goal. I mean, he's a senior. He just started senior year. Yeah. His lifelong goalie made eight feet. Awesome. And I mean, people had tears in their eyes because he's just yeah. such a good guy. Yeah. And that's really what, you know, that's really what we're all out here for. I mean, for me, yeah. I look at the, you know, I'm, I'm an old, older guy now. So when you talk to people, they'll say, Oh, I tried that once or I did that in high school or I knew this guy that did that. Mm. The number one thing I want kids that came through with me, whether they stayed for one week, you know, or one month or one year. Yeah. The number one I thing I want them to say is that, Hey, I really had a lot of fun. Yeah. I mean, and, and that's it. And then, you know, it's all, it's all about the kids. So they're going to pass through the event and move on to other things. What I find that makes it interesting though is that, you know, the, the kids that when stuff we used to jump with, they have kids and all of a sudden their kids are all, so now they're back to ball. So right. it kind of gives you, you know, another pass through another yeah. generation. But my thing is always that, like I said, one week, one month, one year, I want the kids to say, wow, I did that for a while. And it was really a lot of fun. If they can't say that, then I failed. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, a lot of us talk about growing the sport. If people don't have fun with it, then yeah, what what are we doing? You know, it's like they they should have fun. They should enjoy their experience. You know, and and that's what will keep the sport going. You know. Well, and you know how our event, our event is very, you know, like John Clark. The story everybody's heard about him. You know, he'd never vaulted before when I'd I'd won in New Zealand the World Masters mm-hmm. Games. He'd, he'd messaged me that I think at six years old it was too late to start trying to pull. Yeah. I'm like, of course not, you know, yeah, of course yeah. not. So and another thing, you know, there are world championships, which I absolutely love. Our world championships don't require qualifying marks. And you have to think about it. Mm-hmm. Our world masters games, that's 30 sports, mm-hmm. 30 to 50,000 athletes from over a hundred countries. Wow. So if you want to put on an event of that scale, yeah. um, then you have to have participants. Right. So I would, I would invite every single person that's, that wants to participate to participate. I, I don't think it needs to be elitist. They're in our national meets the same right. way. You don't yeah. have to have a qualifier. And I, I love that because it brings yeah. new people in the sport that are, that are good people that are willing right. to do a lot. I mean, look at Becca didn't jump the highest in the world. Uh, Gus yeah. Lang, Doug Lang didn't jump the highest in the world. Mm-hmm. And he had vaulted world according to Gus. Yeah. A lot of these people don't do that, but they've given so much support. Mike Soul in Minnesota. Yeah. He's done so much for his sport. He's an eight six jumper. I mean, but yeah. it doesn't matter. But, you know, you don't get those guys if you don't let them participate. I just don't like the elitist idea that you have to jump a certain height to get into the meet. I mean, I remember World Championships in Sacramento in 2011. There's this guy from India, and he had only been jumping for a couple of weeks. He was doing other events. and Mm -hmm. So he asked if we could start at five feet. Well, the way the rules read is there's a recommended height, but you can start at any height that the lowest athlete wants to jump, which right. I also like. Yeah. So he started at five feet. He ended up jumping like six, six. And I mean, you thought he won the Olympics. Everybody yeah. was screaming for him and cheering for him. Yeah. You've never seen a guy more happy in your life. And, yeah. You know, we need more of that in the world. No, a hundred percent. The, the meet that I run in the summer, 
Um, you know, last summers we've had uh, over a hundred competitors, so it's been awesome. And uh, somebody asked me, they're like, oh, are, are you going to raise the opening bars? I'm like, no, I'm like, I want as many people to compete and have fun as possible, you know? And it's like, and look, it's like the way I run it, it's like, it's like, there's a three tiered warm up system. So it's like, if you're someone that's coming in later, you literally don't have to warm up, get on the runway, do anything till it's that third, you know, warm up period, which is pretty close to everyone's opening bar who's top tier. And so it's like, it works out for everybody. It's fair for everybody. And, uh, you know, maybe it's a long day for some people, but it's like, that's, that's what a track meet's like. And especially events like that, where you have a lot of people, but you know, it's about having fun and letting everybody be a participant and let everyone enjoy it. You know, um, right. it, it's so huge. I, 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 yeah. I would love to keep talking Bubba, but I got to yeah, get ready to go to a meet. Yeah. <laughs> but we definitely have to do this again. Um, thank you so much for being on. You don't have an Instagram, do you Bubba? No, I don't. It's on Facebook. Okay. But, so, uh, I appreciate, I appreciate everything you do. Big fan. Always want to support you in any way I can. Uh, get on the angles you say. I love the way you present it. I love the way you coach. I love your, your thank you. process, the ideas you put out there. So anytime you need me, I'm happy to be here. Thank you. That, that means a lot, Bubba. And, um, I just want to say thank you for everybody listening. Um, please subscribe to the podcast. Um, any, any questions or comments, please email us at apexvaulting at gmail.com. And again, thanks. Thanks for listening.